The flip side to that though is that black people can also be really nervous about approaching this conversation with a white person because you don't know the reaction that you're going to get, right? Like, is this person going to be dismissive of what you have to say or gaslight you in some way or, uh, you know, get angry and defensive? And that can make you feel hesitant about having these conversations. And I think that's what happened. My relationship with Joe and our collaboration is that we were both nervous about diving in for lots of different reasons. And we're really honest about that because once people see, oh, right, okay, this is kind of unavoidable to be nervous, that's not an excuse not to do it anyway. Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. The paperback edition of How To Be Sad, The Key To Happiness is out now if you'd like to find out more. And in the meantime, join me each week as a very special guest shares their own story of how to be sad well. My guests today are Joe Piazza and Christine Pride. Joe is a best-selling author and journalist. Christine is her esteemed editor and a publishing veteran. Working together, the pair became friends, and now they've written a novel together. The result, We Are Not Like Them, is the story of a lifelong friendship between a black woman named Riley and a white woman named Jen. The story begins with Riley working as a news reporter and Jen married to a police officer pregnant with her first child. Jen's husband is involved in a shooting with an unarmed black teenager, an event that throws their friendship into turmoil. They have to do a lot of racial reckoning and coming to terms with the blind spots that they and many of us have around race. So this is a podcast all about learning to handle sadness better, to tolerate discomfort and get better at difficult conversations. And We Are Not Like Them is a masterclass in difficult conversations, not only for its characters, Jen and Riley, but for its authors too. So I am so delighted to welcome them both today. Thank you very much for joining us, Christine and Joe. Oh, thank you for having us. And I love this idea for a podcast because I just don't think we talk enough about how to not thrive, but just to get through the things that are hard. So thank you for creating it. Same here. So happy to be here. Um, and this is just great. I think, you know, right on brand with, like you said, uncomfortable conversations and and we want to help people do that too. I think that's so great. And I think, you know, I'm from the UK, you're from the US and the UK and the US are sort of outliers in terms of that avoidance approach to difficult conversations. So I would love to hear how it went. I've read a few bits about you and you're going to have to say who's speaking at each time, but as it's an audio medium, but tell me about your working relationship and how you converted it from editor, author to co-authors. Yeah, definitely. So this is Joe, And you know, one of the things that we have to do in audio that sounds so uncomfortable when we say it, but it makes sense in the context of our book is to be like, I'm Joe. I'm a white woman. and I'm Christine and I'm a black woman (laughs) and it's just so awkward but because of the topic of our book about interracial friendships we do have to put that out there so yeah Christine and I became friends later in life when I sometimes when I say that I'm like they're like like in a retirement community yeah Yeah. (laughs) in middle middle life because Christine was my editor at Simon and Schuster and she was honestly the best editor that I've ever had and I've had some really good editors and I just loved working with her she was so thoughtful in an industry that can just sometimes be really difficult to be a writer I've d- written about 10 books in the past decade and Christine 
just held my hand all the way through writing Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win. And then we did another project together, which was a quick and dirty novel for the TV show Younger. Um, there's a lot of younger fans out there because it's set in the world of publishing. So people that read tend to like to watch that show. We had to write that novel. It was called Marriage Vacation in four weeks. And oh wow! so ostensibly Christine was my editor, but she was also really my co-writer because we just had to bang through it. And after that, we're like, this is great. We love working together. What else can we do? And Christine had a little, had the nugget of an idea that she'd been thinking about for a long time. And so I'll let her pick it up there. Yeah. And, and this, this was early uh, 2018, around January, 2018. And, you know, this nugget of an idea was about a black woman and a white woman whose relationship is thrown into turmoil by appreciating that they're both you know, somehow have personal stakes in. We wanted to, I mean, one, we wanted to do this book together, but in terms of what excited us about the idea itself is that we wanted to tackle a hard conversation and a hard issue. Um, that was something that even from the beginning, when I went to Joe with this idea in sort of a proposal fashion, uh, hoping she would say yes. Um, but we took the gravity of it very seriously. You know, we knew we had a lot of sobering conversations before we even started writing a word because we knew what we were getting ourselves into um, and that we'd have to really lean into a topic that is hard for people and can be fraught. And I think we were more thinking of it in the context of the book product itself. What we didn't anticipate as much in terms of those early conversations was how much of that fraught process would play out in our own relationship and our own collaboration, right? So that was interesting. So the process of having difficult conversations whilst writing a book <laughs> about having difficult conversations. Very meta. <laughs> yes, yes. And I've heard, I've heard, um, Joe, you say that you had a reticence about, I don't know, about taking on the project or about saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Can you can you tell me how how you approached it? You know, I wanted to take on the project from the very beginning, even though there was a part of me. And at the urging of my husband, after working on my novel, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, he's like, why don't you do something that's just really light and fun next? <laughs> Famous last words. Uh -huh, yeah, <laughs> something you're just really going to, it's going to make you, just make you, make you yeah. laugh every morning. <laughs> and, um, but from the very beginning, when Christine came to me with this idea, I kind of had the tingles, which is something that we say in the book, you know, when you kind of like, you feel something like you have a premonition that something's important. And I knew that this was a book that had to be written. I've been a journalist for 20 years. I've seen how shootings, how violence against black bodies, all of how all of that is covered. And I was so passionate from the very beginning about writing a book that got behind those headlines. But I'm also, I'm just, I'm a reporter and at heart. And that was my first job. It's what I do. And so I do often take a very clinical attitude towards reporting out stories and to doing interviews because you have to, you have to, you, you know, you go in your objective, you do your job. And I've reported on so many different things. I reported on terrorist attacks. I've reported on murders. And so I thought that I was very equipped to 
talk about race and to craft a story about race. And I realized like a lot of white Americans, I had so many blind spots and also so much fear and anxiety of getting it wrong, of saying the wrong thing, of potentially saying something that could be misconstrued as insulting. And all of that anxiety made me clam up at first, not be able to talk about it in a really open and honest way, because I was just so nervous about doing the wrong thing, about not having the right words to have the discussion. That's so interesting. And Christine, I've heard you saying that as a Black person, you can't avoid having conversations about race, but but that you came to realize that for Joe and for other white women, it, it is possible to you know, it, it is something that many of us feel we, we are worried about perhaps saying the wrong thing. So maybe avoid or or just don't find ourselves having to have these difficult conversations. Can you tell me about some of the tough moments you've had to work through or some of the things that surprised you about going into this project? Sure. And I think that's the thing that did surprise me, what you just mentioned about this this idea that, you know, I, I have been talking about race my whole life as a Black person, you know, at the family dinner table and, you know, with other Black friends, you know, other white friends even too. And so I think I underestimated the degree to which white people are so nervous about having this conversation or step around it, as opposed to what I think I perhaps unfairly thought before was it was more an apathy about having these conversations, right? Like this doesn't affect me. So there's really no need for me to do this. And so I can kind of give it a clear birth. Um, And now, that we've been on tour and the book has been out there and that we've been talking to a lot of people, it really comes up time and time again. I'm just so nervous to do this. I'm so nervous to do this. And the flip side to that though, is that black people can also be really nervous about approaching this conversation with a white person because you don't know the reaction that you're going to get, right? Like, is this person gonna be dismissive of what you have to say or gaslight you in some way or, uh, you know, get angry and defensive? And that can make you feel hesitant about having these conversations. And I think that's what happened early on in my relationship and our collaboration, my relationship with Joe and our collaboration is that we were both nervous about diving in for lots of different reasons. And we're really honest about that because once people see, oh, right, okay, this is kind of unavoidable to be nervous, that's not an excuse not to do it anyway. And I think a lot of times in our national and global conversations about race, the conversations don't even start because people just are too anxious about having them. And how did you work through those those moments of tension? We cried. <laughs> <laughs> sure did. Mainly wine and crying. Um, sure. No, there was there was crying. There was crying, and there were some harsh, tense words. And as happens with our characters in the book, there were also some really strange, tiptoey emails that were sent back and forth, which. I had forgotten until I had to go back through my emails to look for something else where it's like we weren't talking about the thing that upset us, but we were and we were upset. And I mean, all we did all of the things that you do when you feel uncomfortable in a friendship, except fully shut it down. And we've actually heard from a lot of people that during um, 2020, when 
things got really tough here in the States with regards to race that they did just shut a lot of friend friendships down. Christine and I did not have that luxury when we hit rough spots because we were contractually obligated to finish this book. And <laughs> we also wanted to save our friendship. Like the thing that hurt me the most, and I remember saying this, I think to my husband, it was like, like just had a baby. And I'm like, and I wanted to share things with Christine. And I felt weird about sharing the personal stuff with her. Like our work relationship was so fraught. And so eventually we just had to come back together and be like, what the, where the hell do we start? Like what, tell me what made you feel this way. And I'll tell you what made me feel this way. We have to be very honest about where we're both coming from and how we got to this point. And we just had no choice but to have uncomfortable conversations to get through it. And a lot of that is my fault because I didn't have the muscles to talk about race. I just didn't. And like, I had to get rid of my anxiety and admit to Christina, like, this is why I have this anxiety. This is why I feel this way. It's not because I'm apathetic or I don't want to talk about it. I'm really afraid of not being good at it. And there's a level of hubris there too, right? Like I like to be good and sound smart mm -hmm. at whatever I'm talking about. And especially as a reporter, like we know a little bit about a lot of things. And I just, I felt really stupid walking into some of our conversations and it was not a place that I had been before. Aside from having a contractually obligated friendship, Tell me about the importance then, do you think, about interracial friendships and, and why it's perhaps hard to make them? Well, I think it's a comfort zone thing for sure, right? Where you want your friendships to be easy and fun and lighthearted and human nature tells us, even if it's a trick or not, <laughs> uh, evolution, uh, that like attracts like, right? That that you want to seek out people that have similar life experiences and interests and hobbies and uh, worldviews as you do. But we don't believe that, you know, we believe that your life can be really enriched by becoming friends with all different sorts of people of all different sorts of backgrounds. But that does require making a leap to share and understand those different experiences. And that's just an extra level of work and investment, which should also not be a deterrent though, right? Like that's the, that's part of the meaning in and of itself, we would argue. Um, and sure, is it going to be a little more seamless for me to have a relationship with a Black friend because we have the shared understanding and there's a, a knowingness that doesn't require any explanation? You know, you can just look and say, oh, yep, I, I, I know exactly what you mean, or that happened, or, you know, I get it. But at the same time, you learn so much more about yourself, about the world, about how different people live, by having intimate relationships, you know, where there's a certain amount of vulnerability on both sides about your different experiences. And there's real value there. And Joe and I have been trying to practice what we preach in that way, that for all of the hesitancies that we've been talking about to have these conversations to forge a friendship with somebody that might be different than you, the value on the other side, having pushed through the conversations and the, you know, sort of early awkwardness that may exist is that you have a meaningful relationship. And so we want people to see that too. 
I love that. And it's, I guess it's helpful to point out that Jen and Riley in the book meet as kids mm-hmm. before race becomes something that they're conscious of. It's reminded me of something that Zadie Smith has said about the importance of going to, well, non-fee-paying schools. It would be in the UK where everybody can go and have a chance to meet people from different backgrounds and, you know, not be put into a rut early in life where you're only meeting people who are like your parents. Just seems, yeah, hugely important. And that's the way our society is both, you know, here and in the UK are structured. You know, we live in really socially and thus racially segregated societies or schools, sports events, even, you know, the most diverse places tend to be our offices. But even there, you know, I would argue that people tend to self-segregate a lot, right? I mean, it's just, we see, we observe it around us and it's going to take some effort to break those kind of patterns and to make different choices, even about where you live, what activities you participate in, who your children play with, right? To, to, to avoid what you were just talking about, you know, just falling in the, the grooves of society as we so often do. But we've been doing that a long time and, you know, things are not changing to the degree that I think anybody would feel is fast enough in terms of racial progress. And yeah, and Christine, I wanted to ask you as well, you, you mentioned the workplace just then, Thinking about publishing, mm-hmm. it, it seems traditionally a pretty white industry. I, there's, a, there's a character, the, the new district attorney in the book, who gives a speech about exceptionalism. And I wonder whether there's something that you have encountered in the publishing industry and just the, the lack of diversity there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, publishing has been a really obscenely white industry. I mean, it just, it's, it's kind of astonishingly so. And so there was that myth of exceptionalism, I think for me and the handful of other black editors around. And I think a lot of tokenism too, to a degree, right? Like as long as you can point to somebody down the hall, even if the rest of the building is, everybody looks exactly the same. It's sort of, you know, it's very easy to say who us, what? No, Christine's here. Chris is here. Dawn's here. Tracy. Sadly, I can almost name all the people, uh, all the black editors. And that's a problem. You know, I think it's a problem that publishing has woken up to uh, and is trying to improve on as, you know, our other industries. But I really identify with Sabrina on the page um, and Riley to some degree, too, in that respect, where when you operate in an all white world, especially when it comes to your career and you're trying to get ahead and navigate, you know, social life at work and find mentors even and opportunities. It is a very different ball game when you're the only person of color around and it takes a lot of mental stamina and perseverance and, you know, hard work to that. I think people, um, can tend to, if you haven't experienced that, underestimate. There would be a lot of other editors, in other words, who would say, Christine and I had the same career, you know? She's just like, oh, you know, me, we, we did this and we came in at the same time, but it was arguably a harder path for me. I think you've done a great job in the book of conveying the mental load that is often, I mean, I would say not appreciated by many white people. You open from the shooting victim's point of view I wonder, Joe, how important was this for you that you were you were coming in to to convey 
you know, how you the guy has drummed in him from early in life that he has not to make any sudden movements in case people around him think he has a gun, how he has to comport himself indifferently to a white boy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it was really the book always has been about a female friendship. It was very important to the two of us that we weren't writing, you know, a morality play, that we were focusing all of these events on how they impacted these two women and how they impacted their lifelong friendship because we wanted to bring race down to like such a small microcosm so that it, it felt relatable because we all have a friend that we love and that we want to succeed and there's there are things that come between all of us but because the incident that kicks off this book was the shooting of a young black man we di also didn't want that to just be a plot point. It was very important to both of us that Justin got the first word in this book, that his family got the last word, that we were able to bring in details that would fill out his story so much more than most of the news stories do about shooting victims. There was so much press about George Floyd and we did finish the book before George Floyd was murdered, but, you know, so many people are familiar with his story. And yet there was, there were so few articles that talked about him as a man and really like, you know, got, got below the surface. And so it was important for us to tell Justin's story about what it was like growing up in this particular neighborhood of Philadelphia always being a little bit wary of the police, knowing what to do if he if he was stopped. And you know, these are details that Chris, Christine filled in some of them. We filled in some of them by me interviewing the mothers of shooting victims and shooting victims themselves. And we, we wanted that to seem as close to reality as possible. And I think I've talked to a lot of white readers who will say things like, I never, I never heard it from that perspective. I never thought, oh, especially mothers, like, oh, that I should have to tell my white sons to be afraid of the police like this, because they haven't had conversations with, with Black women for whatever reason. And so this might be the first time that they're seeing that perspective on the page. And just like those little details are what I think people will take away and you have more empathy and they connect us as human beings. And as in that case, as women and mothers, and when you can find these other things to connect about, then race doesn't seem as daunting. I wonder how you divided up the writing of these passages and, and how, you, how you structured the book and how you divided up the workload between you. Well, we knew from the beginning that we wanted the book to be told in alternating points of view between Riley and Jen uh, in alternating chapters. That was really important to us and that felt like it was going to be the best way to tell the story from both points of view. And once we decided that, then it was a matter of going into a Google Doc, uh, meeting, making a transition from Microsoft Word, which I was very attached to, to being dragged, <laughs> kicking and screaming over to Google Docs by Joe Piazza. I know Joe loves mm -hmm. the spreadsheets. Yeah, She loves okay. her some Google Docs. And, and it, it proved to be the best, really only way we could mechanically, you know, actually work on this book at the same time. So I, I was a convert. But we also knew that we wanted to write 
both of us wanted to write both characters. We never had a conversation about how I would take one character and she would take the other, though a lot of people make that assumption that I, Christine, wrote the Black character and Joe wrote the white character. But we, we really didn't. We, we created these characters and thought about who they were and a lot of conversations. Uh, and then we created a really, really detailed outline of what would happen in the story. And so once we did that, we knew the characters and we kind of knew what was going to happen. Then we could both go into this Google Doc whenever we could, which at the time we started writing this, both of us were still essentially working full-time doing other things. I was still at Simon & Schuster at the time. And we also lived on different coasts and in different time zones. So just logistically, that's the way we had to do it. So that at you know, 2 a.m., if I had a crazy idea or inspiration, I could go on the dock, make some changes, leave Joe a note and comments and vice versa. And so a lot of our interactions and conversations about the book actually did take place in, in Google com- comments. And so it was just kind of a real time live document that was massaged and massaged and massaged and massaged years and years until it was done. It sounds like quite a dynamic, lovely way to write. I always love working with an editor. There's yeah. a, it reminds me of sort of having a pen pal mm-hmm. that yeah. when you get sort of the comments back in the in the margins. And oh, that sounds fantastic. And in the book, some characters that we might expect to be vilified are portrayed sympathetically. I, you know, the police officer wearing a bulletproof vest that expired two years ago and every day his wife worries whether or not he'll come home alive and she's saving up to buy him his own bulletproof vest to pay it off in installments. And this, I mean, I was outraged by this coming from the UK that in a wealthy country, lives are considered so cheap for many different sectors of society. You seem very generous in the way you are portraying all of the characters, really. It would have been very easy to veer into caricature or to create very clear and distinct villains in this book. And that also would have been incredibly irresponsible because the issues of policing um, and police violence in America are so complicated and none of them were created in an echo chamber. And we wanted to show the humanity behind every single person involved in this tragedy in a way that it just, I don't think that it's often shown. And so we spent a lot of time talking to police officers, both white officers and black officers. And let me tell you, both of their experiences are similar in many, many ways and very, very different in many, many ways. But also because our one of our main characters, Jen, is a police officer's wife. It was so important for us to understand what that is like. And it's something that I don't think I can't relate to it as, you know, my husband's a climate change consultant. And <laughs> I made the joke, I'm like, I don't, con- I don't walk around calling myself a climate change wife, the way that Jen calls herself a police wife and that police wives, you know, really adopt their husband's career as part of their identity. It was important to show that Jen is terrified every day that her husband is going to be shot and killed because he goes to places every day where there are bullets being fired and he has a bulletproof vest that is expired because the city didn't pay for a new bulletproof vest. And those are the kinds of little details that we don't hear about or see. And we wanted all of the characters to have real stakes in this tragedy and for the readers to be able to sympathize with even the people that you didn't expect that you would be sympathizing with, because that those are the conversations that we need to be having. 
Yeah, I think you do an amazing job there. And it's clear that you've done a lot of research. I wonder, Joe, as a, as a fellow journalist, the mercenary nature of some aspects of journalism are not shied away from in the book, uh, being asked to get comments from grieving parents, asking grieving parents to, to go on air to talk about the loss of their child hours after he died and feeling dirty, feeling it was wrong. I had a similar experience. I think in my mid-20s, I was asked to doorstep grieving parents and it's a it's a very uncomfortable awful it's awful yeah right so how <laughs> how are you all feeling about that now I was just I, I reminded me I was with a bunch of college friends this weekend and I I went to journalism school at, at the University of Missouri and it just reminded me that the the school you know is ranked so highly here and it's such a competitive program because the students work actually as local reporters in Columbia, Missouri for the actual local station, KOMU. And when I was a freshman, the end of my freshman year, a girl committed suicide in my dorm on my floor, actually. And my teacher told me to go interview her parents because I was the only one who could get round the clock access for when they were coming and packing up her dorm room. And I said, I was not going to do this. Like I was so appalled and horrified. And he looked at me and he said, then are you sure you have what it takes to make it in this program? (laughs) Oh my. It was not great. (laughs) But he also wasn't wrong. No, it's true. It's true. (laughs) At all. Well, I think he was only wrong in that you shouldn't send an 18 year old to do that. It would be, the context really matters. Sending an actual news credential news reporter and I think is a little bit different than sending a teenager to go talk to grieving parents yeah I I can agree on that one (laughs) yes I no I can I can but I also I remember I was an intern at the times right after 9-11 and you know just doing some like shoestring reporting on the faces of death and I was still in college and I remember just being like I'm like I'm supposed to ask them what and they're like either do it or this isn't the job for you. You talk in the book about formative female friendships. I love a line where Riley talks about her friend Gabby teaching her how to be the adult she has to turn into. And that just felt so appealing for someone else to sort of take control. And we've all had a friend like that. Do you think, yeah, I want to be like you. T- tell me who, who's the best person to tell me about about Gabby and about, um, yeah, that that real yearning that we often have growing up to just have someone to show us how to do it right. Christine started creating Gabby and then I jumped in because we really did all, both of us touched every sentence of this book, but I'll let her start with um, the evolution of Gabby. Well, I just think it's this idea that we also are trying to get across with Riley and Jen too, that when you are friends with somebody for a long period of time, and especially when it's a childhood friendship uh, or even a high school friendship, or I would argue a college friendship, right? Where you're with this person side by side during these really formative years where you're all these first and all these incredible milestones, and you're really becoming the person that you are. And your female friendships during this period are so influential in that, in both holding a mirror up to yourself. And also, you know, there's another line in the book where it's like, you know, you don't, you don't know how you feel until you talk about it with your friend or you see their reaction. It's similar to that, right? Where 
your friends just help you become the person that you are. I mean, that's a hundred percent been the case in my life. And we wanted to get that aspect of female friendship across too. I think it's, yeah, it's a really compelling part of the narrative and it's, it's something I'm sure so many of us can can relate to that just such an intensity of the relationship and I also can relate to the the part where Jen is experiencing infertility I struggled for years to to get pregnant and she just has this feeling of being possessed she has such a strong desire to have a baby and then wonders what would happen if she hadn't got pregnant would her marriage have survived and catastrophizing when she fears not not hearing a heartbeat is that something that that you similarly researched with with interviews is something that you have personal experience of? Yeah. So we knew that we wanted the stakes for Jen to be high. Like it's one thing to leave a marriage if you start to have doubts about the person you married, but it's another thing to leave the father of your child. And we wanted at the time too, I was just in the midst of having babies and trying to have babies and having miscarriages and literally going to those doctor's appointments where you're like in the early days where you're just terrified. You're like, is it still there? Is it still there? And, you know, I'm like one of those women that ordered one of the, like the heartbeat monitor from Amazon and then would like try to find the baby's heartbeat myself all the time in between doctor's appointments, because you also don't do a sonogram every appointment. And I was just, I think I transferred so much of that fear onto Jen while we were writing her character, but we thought it was really important because that is like another aspect of friendship, like to, to help a friend go through fertility issues and even through a healthy pregnancy is hard. And, but we wanted to show Jen and Riley kind of growing apart through that because it was something that Riley wasn't going through and didn't know if she ever wanted to go through, was still figuring that out. And Jen was in the thick of it. And even though Riley couldn't relate, she was still there for her. And she still said, okay, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you have this baby. I'll loan you money. I will talk to you. I will stay on the phone with you every night. I will hold you on the bathroom floor when you cry after a miscarriage. And I think that was one of the really important things to show about their friendship that even in the things that they couldn't relate to each other, where they were very different, they were still there for each other when they had to be. Yeah, it's a very moving part of the story. And I wonder if that's, I mean, is there a moral of the story? This is my question. Can we simplify it? You know, Riley's mum says something at one point that it doesn't matter if you don't know what to say. It only matters if you try. And I wonder if if that goes for their friendship as well as conversations about race and and trying to have these difficult conversations. You're not just going to have them just once. You're going to have them over and over again. And you might make mistakes, but you have to keep trying. Is that a fair take home? That's, you took the words right out of our mouths. I mean, that's exactly (laughs) it. And that's something that we really do emphasize that this is not going to be one kumbaya on March 15th you know, we had an hour long conversation about race, talked about everything. And now we're moving on to the rest of our friendship. Uh, that it, it doesn't work that way. And, and so we want to encourage people to be open, honest over time and build trust. That's such a key part of talking about race period, but talking about anything 
difficult or that involves any sort of personal sharing or vulnerability, right? That you have to trust the other person. You have to trust their reaction and vice versa. And that that is not something that can be earned in one conversation. That is something like developing any relationship is really incremental over time. And the same way, the flip side to that too, is that you don't want to write anybody off after one conversation either, right? I think we're so quick to do that in our societies in general, but certainly in this moment of, oh God, you know, nope, nope. She said the wrong thing. She did the wrong thing. I'm done here. She'll never get it. She'll never understand. That's the kind of person she is, you know, all these kind of extreme statements and reactions, which is really easy to do. That's our climate. And so we also want to encourage people to take a breath and to, we call it extending grace, right? To, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt to a point, of course, you're not going to convert any rapidly racist person, you know, to your, to a different point of view through being nice, nor should you feel that obligation, um, especially as a black person, but you do want to think about this being a process and this being a journey that there's room in these conversations for grace and for forgiveness and for allowing people their mistakes without writing them off completely. That's a lovely way of putting it. And is it right that you are continuing the conversation? Are you writing another book together now? We are. <laughs> we want to we we write about a lot of books together, actually. Oh, how like, lovely. Although I was, I was, the other day I was like, I, I just kind of want to write a thriller. I feel like that would be fun. But maybe we could write a thriller that involves um, uncomfortable conversations about race. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting. Fun. And what do you both personally do now when it all feels too much? You, When you have moments where things do feel hopeless or you feel as though you perhaps can't extend that grace. Christine, how about you first? When things feel too much, what do you do? My friends have been such a lifeline for me. I mean, I already knew that before publishing a book and before the pandemic and before everything, but it has just really been reinforced to me over the last year, for sure. It's been such a hard year. Uh, I mean, it's been such a hard year in the world. It's been, we had some very challenging twists and turns with the book itself. It was such a hard summer last summer with George Floyd's murder. I mean, it's just been a lot. So the lows have been low and the highs, like this last month, putting the book out in the world and the fantastic publication and just the reception it's received. And through both of those polls, my friends have really showed up for me in a big way. Um, and I'm just, no matter how happy I am or how low I feel, they're my lifeline to call or talk to. Um, and so that is just as a resource and self-care and, you know, just as emotional stability <laughs> that has been just so, so, so incredible and better than any drug or workout or pile of french fries or all the other things I also do for coping. Okay. <laughs> Friends better than french fries. I like it. We'll get t-shirts made up. <laughs> and how about you, Joe? Yeah, you know, the same. My one of one of the most fun parts about being on this book tour is that Christine and I get to see each other's friends uh-huh. too yeah. because we both had friends show up from literally every part of our lives 
to various book events. So it's like, here's my best friend from college. Here's my best friend from college. Here's my best friend from high school. Here's my best friend from high school. Um, here's my old work wife, my old work wife. I, so that has been incredible to see all of the people just coming out for us. And for me, it's also like consistency. I, it's funny you asked that question because I was doing another podcast interview with my friend AJ right before we got on this. And he has a podcast about recovery and just like how, how to get through hard things, which I think I should introduce you guys because you have mm. a lot to talk about. And he was saying, I feel like he used to be um, a journalist for Gawker. And he's saying, he's like, I just feel like a fraud most of the time. He's like, and then I look at your Instagram of this book launch and all this stuff coming out. He's like, and you're doing amazing. And I'm like, oh, I still feel like a fraud most days <laughs> and like a giant failure and a massive fraud. And I think having friends and just people you can talk honestly about the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and like the real shit. It's not like the fancy, pretty filtered Instagram shit is what gets you through all of it. Like, because yeah, publishing a book is awesome. So many people are reading it and talking about it. And we were on Good Morning America and Deborah Roberts was like the nicest, best interviewer ever. And all of that was a dream. Um, and, but then Christine and I have also just been going through stuff behind the scenes and, you know, we're both tired. I was away from my kids for the first time. And so it's like real, there's real life going on. And just to put that in perspective and also remember that no one ever feels like they're doing good enough. No one ever feels like they deserve the A and reminding yourselves like we all, we all feel like that sometimes. That's a good reminder. Yeah, the smoke and mirrors. And I could talk to you guys for hours. But finally, with all you know, I always like to end by asking my guests, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old selves now about how to be sad well? Yes, I would say lean into it. And I was thinking about this, you know, a lot of my sadness or big feelings, shall we say, at 21 um, were about the stress that my life was not going to turn out the way that I wanted it to, you know, like I felt like I had to make all of these very high stakes decisions about where to live in a job. And, and that if I made one wrong move, you know, it was all going to fall apart. <laughs> and I would tell her now looking back that life has a way of working itself out and that no, no one decision is going to, you know, send you careening into a, a life you never would have imagined for yourself. Um, and, and that we, the fact that we have, we think we have so much control over how our lives turn out, which I definitely felt at 21 is a little bit of an illusion or a lot of an illusion actually. And I find that to be liberating now. I find embracing that to be liberating. I agree. Yeah, I think embracing the chaos has been a really helpful one to, to come to terms with. Absolutely. I tell her it's all going to be okay. <laughs> I'm sure she would appreciate that. And how about you, Jo? I'm sure she wouldn't believe you, though, because you don't believe <laughs> yeah. things that women in their 40s tell you when you're 23. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, well, first of all, I tell her, don't drink that whole lot of vodka when you're sad. That's, <laughs> that's not going to work out for you. You're going to feel like shit in the morning. You'll girlfriend. just cry vodka tears. Yeah. <laughs> don't drink the vodka. 
I think uh, Christine totally stole my answer as she often does because we share a brain. That's why I like to go first. <laughs> I know. I knew what you were doing there. Like I felt you, I felt you moving in. And I would tell her that no one is paying as much attention to you mm. as you are. That's a good And one. I think the hard thing when we're that age is we're like, oh my gosh, everyone knows that this thing happened or I messed this up or that I'm going through this no one is paying any attention to you. Everyone is only paying attention to themselves when you're in your twenties. And so don't worry about what you think everyone else is thinking about you because they're just not. And then also what Christine said, it's all going to end up okay. I still have like panic dreams. I mean, I have the normal panic dreams where I'm in school and I've never been to a class and I don't know my class schedule and I'm going to fail and never make anything of my life. But I also have this weird one where like somehow I've just made a huge mistake and broken up with the one guy that was my last chance at getting married or having kids. And I remember feeling like every breakup was that. And now I'm 41 years old with two children um, and a lovely husband. And I'm still having that dream. I'm still having it because I think that we are all kind of like constantly on the, like we think we're on the brink of like messing it all up and just try to enjoy what's happening to you right now because it's pretty great. Um, even when it seems like you're messing it, messing it all up. And remember that everyone feels that way too. Also, I think what's so funny is the things that make you sad at 21 are so vastly different than the things that make you sad at 41. And yet you feel the same level of stakes at 21, even though at in your forties, you know, it's real, it's sick children and parents dying. And, you know, really I can't pay the mortgage. And I mean, actual problems that you had the same level of <laughs> sadness about, you know, oh my God, he didn't text me back. It's just funny how they can, those emotions can match. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yes. It's the same emotions just sort of geared up in a different direction. And actually, Joe, as you say about people not paying attention and we, we worry about things a lot more, I was fascinated. There's, there's actually great research on that, that we never mess up a social interaction or a conversation as much as we fear we have. Like sort of never, ever, 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 which I find so liberating to think about. You think, oh, it's fine. They really don't care that I made a fool out of myself. It's really unimportant. I need to read that research like on Sunday mornings after, you know, the Saturday cocktail party when you're like, oh, why did I ask? Oh, why did just Sunday morning? I'm just going to read that, that that case study. <laughs> we'll get it put on a coffee mug yeah. and we'll distribute them and we'll all remind ourselves. Christine and Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. A real pleasure to speak to you both. Um, and We Are Not Like Them is out now. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.